Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Cerebral Faith Podcast, Episode 7. Today I'm going to be talking about the ontological argument for God's existence. This is the final episode in the series on natural theology arguments that I've been doing over the course of the past several weeks. And, <clears throat> but I, pro- I will be talking about the Kalam cosmological argument, which was talked about in episodes 2 and 3, the, fine, the cosmic fine-tuning argument that was talked about in episode 4, the local fine-tuning argument, the moral argument. Uh, I'm going to be returning to these in future podcast episodes, either in the form of Q&A episodes, you know, maybe someone sends an epi- uh, a question in about the argument or an objection to it that they want me to answer, or maybe someone... Some philosopher has written uh, a whole book, a treatise, on one of these arguments, and I have him on on the air, or something like that. So, this is not going to be all there is uh, on these topics. I will uh, I will be returning to them someday. When I don't know, but you haven't you haven't heard the last of me on the on the Kalam fine tuning moral and ontological arguments. And all of these arguments are are going to be defended in depth in my upcoming book, The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. It is very close to completion. I I would not at all be surprised if I can get if I get it out before the beginning of March. Now, what is the ontological argument, and how does it demonstrate that God exists? This argument was originally formulated by a Benedictine monk named Saint Anselm, and it has been uh, it has gone through several revisions over the centuries. I find Anselm's version to be a little silly, but I'm not going to go into why. However, even though I don't think his version of the ontological argument was any good, he laid the foundation, he laid the groundwork for future philosophers to make it into a robust argument for God's existence. Now, the version I'm going to be defending in this episode is called the modal version, because it employs modal logic. This, uh, I think it was... This version of the argument was initially formulated by Alvin Plantinga, and then it got picked up by William Lane Craig, and I think it's the most, probably the most popular version of the ontological argument debated in philosophical circles today. Now, before I go on to list and defend the premises of this argument, I need to explain some of the unique terminology that will come into play for those without a background in philosophy or apologetics. The ontological argument can be very intimidating to those who are not philosophically trained. And I know this firsthand, because when I first encountered the ontological argument, I was like, what the fudge? (laughs) It employs terms like possible worlds, and a maximally great being, and necessary existence, and contingent existence, and... And I mean, even the very name itself, ontological, the ontological argument. What does ontological mean? What does that mean? 
So let me get into some of the terminology so that when I go through defending this argument, you don't get lost on the way, and you don't get a headache, and you don't have to go take some ibuprofen because I've I just gone so far over your head that I caused your brain to short-circuit. Um, what First, possible worlds. That's, that, that, those two words are going to appear in every premise of this argument. What is a possible world? A possible world is a maximal description of the way the world could be. It is simply a complete list of logically possible states of affairs that could be true of reality. And at least one of these uh, lists of logically possible states of affairs will be true of reality. Now, when we talk about possible worlds, we're not talking about parallel universes. This is not to be confused with the multiverse, which uh, people often bring up in response to the Kalam cosmological and fine-tuning arguments that I dealt with in previous episodes. No, this is not, this is not the multiverse. Uh, possible worlds are just simply, <clears throat> they're just simply lists of logically coherent, logically possible states of affairs that could be true of the world. Maybe they're not true of the world, maybe they are, but they could be true. And they are an exhaustive list of reality. If you still find the term possible worlds confusing, just substitute it for the term possible lists. A possible list. And instead of imagining what I think you're probably imagining is uh, multiple universes or multiple planet Earths, which makes, I think that's, that mental image is what probably makes people conflate it with the many worlds hy uh, hypothesis. Uh, instead, imagine multiple sheets of notebook paper, and on each notebook paper, there is a long list of sentences that describe a logically coherent state of affairs that could be true of reality, such as Evan Minton is recording episode 7 of his Cerebral Faith podcast. Evan Minton is wearing a gray hoodie and a black fedora while he is recording. His microphone is the color red. Uh, his recorder is black. His cat, Jellybean, is sleeping on the chair next to his desk, and so on. All of these are logically possible states of affairs that could be true of reality. And, I'll uh, give a confession here, all of them are true of reality. That is to say, they are true not just of a possible world, but they are true of the actual world. Now, you can change some of the statements on the list. And when you do that, you wind up with an entirely different possible world. So, for example, your, sh your sheet of notebook paper could say, Evan Minton is recording episode 7 of the Cerebral Faith podcast. Evan is wearing an orange t-shirt with a picture of the Pokemon Charmander on it. He is wearing a, gr a green baseball cap. His cat is sleeping in the chair next to his desk. His microphone is the color red, and his Sony recorder is black. Now here you have a possible world, which is very similar to the actual world, but notice that three of the logically possible states of affairs were changed. Instead of me wearing a gray hoodie and black fedora, because it's, it's chilly in my room while I'm recording, I am instead wearing a green 
an orange Pokemon shirt, and I'm wearing a green baseball cap. And those, those are the statements. Just, the, just changing those two statements gets you a completely different world. So that's really all a possible world is. It's not. It's not really this. Um, this extremely abstract and eccentric idea. It's just a list of statements that could be true of reality. Now, what is a maximally great being? A maximally great being is a being that has all of the properties or attributes that go to make a person great. For example, power, knowledge, presence, moral goodness. It has these properties to the greatest extent possible. That is to say, a maximally great being is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and morally perfect. If an attribute would make a person great if he had it, then a maximally great being will have that attribute, and moreover, he will have it to the greatest extent possible. Now, what does ontological mean? This isn't really germane to understanding and defending the argument, so it can really be taken more as an informational footnote. The term ontological refers to the philosophy of being, ontology, the, the, the studies of, of something's existence, to be contrasted with epistemo epistemology, epistemological, which is the study of knowledge, how we know what we know. How do you know what you know, and how do you know that you know that you know? So, it, it comes from the Greek word ontos, which literally means being. So, this is the study of a maximally great being. So, it's the existence of a maximally great being, it's, it's ontology. So, now that I've defended these terms, let's look at the premises of the argument. Again, this will be the modal version that is defended by uh, Alvin Plantinga and William Lane Craig. Premise 1. It is possible that a maximally great being exists. 2. If it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. 3. If a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. 4. If a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. 5. A if a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. 6. Therefore, a maximally great being exists. This is a logically valid argument. The conclusion follows from the premises by the rule of hypothetical syllogism. That's a, a logical rule of inference. Now, it, are these premises true or false? Let's look at them. Premise 1. It is possible that a maximally great being exists. Now, I think that this premise is true. Now, by possible, I don't mean that the existence of a maximally great being, uh, that, I don't mean it in an epistemological sense. I don't mean, like, for example, a weak agnostic who would say, well, it's possible that God exists, and it po it's possible that he doesn't exist. Who knows? Who, who knows? It's possible he does, and it's possible he doesn't. Rather, I mean it in an ontological sense. I mean that something like God, or a maximally great being, could exist in reality. I mean that an, a maximally great being is metaphysically or logically 
possible. By, uh, when so, if something is metaphysically or logically possible, then it could exist. By contrast, uh, logically impossible things w would be things like a square circle or a married bachelor, a one-ended stick, a physical object that has no shape. Th these are not logically possible. They cannot possibly exist. They, they're just, they are incoherent concepts. Now, I don't see any reason to think that an omnipotent, omni omniscient, omnipresent, morally perfect, necessarily existent being is like a square circle, a one-ended, I almost said a one-ended bachelor, a one-ended stick, a merry bachelor, and so on. It, it seems to me that such an entity is intuitively, logically possible. So what about premise two? If it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. This premise is simply true by definition. If the existence of anything is logically possible, then it exists in some possible world. Uh, the only way it would exist in no possible world would be if the thing in question were logically impossible, like the things I just mentioned, square circles, one-ended sticks, married bachelors, um, physical objects with no shape. Uh, these things are contradictions. A shape is either a square or a circle, but not both. A man is either married or unmarried, but he can't be both. A stick always has two ends. These things violate the laws of logic, and therefore they exist in no possible world. By contrast, things like a little green alien or a unicorn, while these things don't exist in the actual world, they do exist in some possible worlds because their existence is logically and metaphysically possible. If God's existence is metaphysically and logically possible, which is what the first premise says, then he at least exists in some possible worlds. What about premise three? If a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then he exists in every possible world. I have to admit, I wasn't always a fan of the ontological argument, and this premise was the reason why. I just saw no reason why this premise had to be true. Why is it that a maximally great being, if he exists in some possible world, he then he's got to exist in all possible worlds? Why couldn't he exist in some possible worlds and not exist in others? Well, as I, as I studied natural theology uh, more in depth, I realized that this premise is true because of how one defines a maximally great being. I think that a maximally great being, by virtue of being maximally great, has the property of necessary existence. He, he exists necessarily. A being who is necessarily existent is intuitively greater than one who is contingently existent. Now, what do I mean by necessarily existent? When something is necessary in the philosophical sense, not, not the colloquial sense, like, was that really necessary? Uh, which is to say, was that really required? Necessary in the colloquial sense is used synonymously with a requirement. But in the philosophical sense, when something is necessary... It, it has to be the way it is. It cannot possibly be otherwise. It, you, there is no possible states of affairs in which... Uh, in, in the case of necessary truths, um, many philosophers take mathematical truths to be necessary truths. They cannot 
possibly be other than what they are. 2 plus 2 has to equal 4. It is, it is metaphysically impossible for 2 plus 2 to equal 5 or 10 or 100 million. It's a necessary truth. It doesn't just happen to be true. It doesn't just happen to equal 4. 2 plus 2 doesn't just happen to equal 4. It necessarily equals 4. And therefore... If, it e if 2 plus 2 equals 4 in some possible world, then it equals 4 in every possible world. If, it equal, if 1 plus 1 equals 2 in some possible world, it will equal 2 in every possible world. If th the statement, all circles are not square, is, metaphysic is metaphysically necessary, and it is, then it is true in all possible worlds. And that's why no square circles exist in any of them. So, if a being is necessarily existent, then he cannot not exist. So, if he exists in some possible world, then he will exist in all possible worlds. Just as if 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's a logically necessary truth, if it equals 4 in some possible world, it will equal 4 in all possible worlds. Necessary truths necessar and necessary beings cannot be in some possible worlds, but not others. And that is why premise 3 is true. So what about premise 4? If a maximally great being exists in every possible world than it exists in the actual world. Again, this, this is a premise that is simply true by definition. If a maximally great being exists in every possible world, and the actual world is a possible world, I mean, we know it's possible because it's actual. If it, if it were an impossible world, then it, it wouldn't exist. This would be a different world. Um... If it exists in every possible world, then of course it exists in, in the actual world, because the actual world is a possible world. We know, we know it's possible precisely because it's actual. So, that leads to premise 5. If a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. That, again, true by definition. If something exists in the actual world... It exists. It exists because the actual world exists. And the conclusion is, therefore, a maximally great being exists. An omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, morally perfect, necessarily, be, necessarily existent being exists in the actual world. The, all of the premises are true, and so the conclusion follows. It is possible that a maximally great being exists... Therefore, a maximally great being exists. And a maximally great being is a necessarily existent, morally perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, personal being. Now, like the moral argument, I think only the Christian God is compatible with this conclusion. I don't think the ontological argument gets you to a generic theism. Various reasons have been given in chapter 5 of my book, Inference to the One True God, which is already available on the market on Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble and other places where books are sold. It's also uh, given in my upcoming revised version of that book, The Case for the One True God. But 
to keep this podcast short, I'm only going to go into one reason why this is the Christian God. In order to be a morally perfect being, this being would have to exist as more than one person. If God is not a trinity, then God is not love. This is because love requires three things. Someone to love, someone to do the loving, and a relationship going on between the lover and the beloved. If these, th if these three things are not present, then love is not present. But before any other human beings were created, God was all by himself. So if God was all by himself, who was there to love? No one. God had no one to love. Given that God had no one to love, God couldn't be love or loving until he created the first human beings or angels or, or any person, uh, persons other than himself. But in that case, God would not be maximally great. In order to be maximally great, God would have to be morally perfect. And in order to be morally perfect, he would have to be a being of perfect love. And he couldn't, and he couldn't be a being of perfect love if he were only a, one person. There would be, he would not be able to express his love to any other persons. But the ontological argument established the existence of a being who is indeed morally perfect, and um, among other things, and therefore maximally great. So, how does one resolve this dilemma? The doctrine of the Trinity provides the answer. If God is a Trinity, then God can be an intrinsically loving being. Because if God is a trinity, then all of the necessary requirements for love are present. You have a lover, you have a beloved, and you have a relationship between them. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of love. Again, only Christianity has a God who is a trinity. Do, go into comparative religions. I dare you to find any other conception of deity in the world, in, in any culture, in any time period, as long as Homo sapiens have been walking the earth, and find a deity who is one divine essence that consists of three distinct persons. You won't find it. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has a triune God. And, I, I, as I put in my book, the, um, the omni-attributes we have here, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, morally perfect, I mean, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, this is not Thor, this is not Zeus, this is not Aphrodite, these, 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 po the polytheistic gods were a finite power, they were a finite knowledge, and finite uh, presence, they could only be one place at one time, and that's, that's why there had to be so many of them, they, they couldn't, they, they couldn't all rule the universe by themselves. There had to be a congress of deities. The omni attribute, but the omni attributes are all are consistent with Judaism and Islam because they also have a god with omni attributes. But you get that moral perfection in there, and you get the logical entailment that God must be a being ex expressing perfect love, and in order to do that, he's got to be a trinity. Then you've eliminated even Islam and Judaism from the equations, and you're just left with the unique Christian conception of God, an omnipotent, omnip omniscient, omnipresent, morally perfect, necessarily existent, triune being. Now this, as I put in the case for the one true God, is, is all, it's not just a good argument for the existence of the Christian God, but for the, the divine inspiration of the Old and New Testaments. After all, if the scriptural authors were just making stuff up, like other so-called scriptures and other so-called holy books, what are the odds 
that the being who exists in all possible worlds and including the actual world, that they would just so happen to describe a being, this being, this maximally great being, this being the ontological argument shows exists, to a T. If they were just making stuff up, if Moses just sat down one day and just was like, yeah, this is what God is like. He can do anything. He's all-powerful. And he's all... And, uh, oh, yeah, and then the New Testament comes along and says, oh, yeah, by the way, God exists as more than one person. If they were just making this stuff up. The best explanation is that the God of the ontological argument was in communication with the authors of the Bible. So this is, I mean, I this seems like the best explanation to me. And I could cash this out in the form of a syllogistic argument. Like, uh, one, if the authors of the Bible were just then they would not describe the God of the ontological argument to a T. Two, the, the authors of Scripture, of, of the Bible, were not... I mean, uh, they, they did describe the God of the ontological argument to a T. Three, therefore, the authors of the Bible were not making stuff up. Or, or one, uh, if the Bible is not inspired then they would, the authors of Scripture would not describe the, um, the maximally great being with precision. Two, they describe the maximally great being with precision. Three, therefore the authors of the Bible were divinely inspired. And that would be a, a logically valid syllogism on the basis of Modus Tollens' reasoning. And I think both premises are true. What do you think? Now, what about the argument? That, this is what I call in my, in my upcoming book the divine identity argument. We, we take, there's the God of natural theology and the God of the Bible. And if both are 100% identical, and there is nothing, nothing whatsoever to distinguish the God of natural theology from the God of the Bible, then the best, then the, the most reasonable explanation is that they are one and the same. This is, uh, this is known in logic as the law of identity. Now, there are objections to the ontological argument that have been posed, and I would like to get into those. Again, um... Not, not gonna get too deep into the weeds because this is just this is gonna be a one-part episode. And next week I plan to have my first guests on, so I'm just going to get just like with last week on the moral argument. I'm going to just get into the most popular or uh, objections to it. By popular, I mean the most commonly brought up. I don't I don't mean those that are brought up by pop-level atheists. Um, some of them are brought up by pop-level atheists as well as philosophers, but by popular, I mean I mean that in the colloquial sense. It's very, very common. And one common, uh, pro I mean probably the number one at the top of the charts objection to the ontological argument is uh, are the, these parody arguments that try to uh, um, commit a reductio ad absurdum. That's Latin for reduction to absurdity. In other words, you know, when you make a reductio ad absurdum argument... You're trying to show, hey, if, you're, if your logic were any good, let's apply it to this different situation. And look, absurd results come about. Um, 
reductio ad absurdums, um, probably one of my favorite kinds of refutation uh, to just show. Okay, le okay. Let's say let's say your logic. Let's say let's say you're doing some really good and sound reasoning here. Let's apply it to this situation, and then you you get really absurd results, like um, oh, like uh, I I recently posted a meme on Facebook and it had a, a smiling child and the caption said, "My liberal teacher told me that guns killed people." I told her that pencils caused that my pencils gave me bad grades. That would be a reductio ad absurdum. The uh, inanimate objects don't do anything. The ones that wield them do. Gu guns don't kill people. People kill people. People who wield guns kill people. Pencils don't give you bad grades. You, the wielder, the the, the one using the pencil, gives the bad grade. So applying the similar logic to the pencil is a reductio ad absurdum argument. It's a reduction to absurdity. Now, uh, what? How does reductio ad absurdums? How do they look when they're applied to the ontological argument? Well, here's one example. Um, Victor Stenger, in his debate with William Lane Craig, appealed to the existence of a maximally great pizza. As a pizza lover, I would love for this argument to be sound. I love pizza. Ask anyone who knows me. I love pizza. But unfortunately, this argument is no good. Um, a pizza must be able to be eaten. If it can't be eaten, it lacks one of the essential properties that makes a pizza a pizza. Why can't you eat a maximally great pizza? Because maximal greatness involves necessary existence, as I've, as I've argued when I gave my defense of premise 3. Necessary existence entails that it cannot fail to exist. If you eat the pizza, it no longer exists. It turns into poop at some point after, you eat, after eat it, eating it, after it goes through the digestive tract. And therefore, it isn't maximally great. Moreover, a... Uh, a pizza, what makes a pizza great seems to be inherently subjective. Uh, is a maximally great pizza, I know this is a really big internet debate, would a pizza be great if it had pineapple on it? Would it be greater if it, did, if it lacked pineapples? Would a, a pizza be great if it had only pepperoni and cheese on it? Or would it be maximally great if it had... Um, uh, pepperoni, little bits of bacon and, and sausage and and um, and little pieces of peppers on top of it. In other words, a, a meat lover's pizza. Would that be a great pizza? What whatever makes a property a, a great making property seems to be subjective. Um, William Lane Craig, in his Defenders class, uh, and I'm, I'm reading from the transcript here, when he dealt, when he um, taught his students the ontological argument, he wrote, quote, The properties that go to make up maximal greatness have intrinsic maximal values. Things like being all-knowing means knowing all truth. There is a kind of maximum quality there that you can't get beyond. You know all truth. Being omnipotent is being able to do anything that is logically possible, or being all good. These have intrinsic maximal values. By contrast, something like a most perfect island, or a maximally great island, 
doesn't seem to have those kinds of intrinsic, grape-making properties. In the case of islands, for example, there could always be more palm trees and more hula girls to increase the greatness of the island. It is not even obvious what the intrinsic properties of a greatest possible island would be. That seems relative to your interests. You can think of a great island as a remote desert island where you can be all by yourself, or one that is bursting with fine resort hotels and all sorts of entertainment. It is relative to the interests of the vacationer. The idea of a greatest island or a most perfect island really turns out not to be a coherent idea. There aren't intrinsic maximal values or even objective properties that go to make up the existence of islands, end quote. Now, William Lane Craig also spoke of another, okay, you have, a necess- you have the maximally great island, you have a maximally great pizza, and the reason why we don't conclude these exist in every possible world and including the actual world is because, unlike God, they are incoherent concepts. Another example would be the idea of a necessarily existent lion. There's a maximally great, necessarily existent lion. He exists in some possible worlds, therefore he exists in all possible worlds, including the actual world. Now, obviously, we would never believe that that such a lion exists, so therefore something, even if you can't put your finger on it, something with the ontological argument must not be any good. Well... The problem with the necessarily existent lion is not because the reasoning of the ontological argument is no good, but because like the, ma- the maximally great pizza and the most perfect island, a necessarily existent lion <coughs> is incoherent. Just think about it. In, in order to be such an animal, this beast would have to exist in every logically possible world. Every possible world. But that would mean that it would have to exist in a universe that consists of nothing but uh, a singular, nothing but stars, no planets, no gal, uh, no no planets, just just galaxies and stars. Or it would have to exist in a world of nothing but a singularity, just a a point of of infinite space time density pressure pressure curvature and so on and all that good stuff. Uh, and it's in a universe like that, you have a necessarily existent lion. Now, obviously, anything that would be capable of existing in universes like these just wouldn't be what we mean by a lion. Um, and the same can be said with the max with a maximally great pink unicorn. Uh, again, anything anything that could exist in a universe that consists of nothing but a simple singularity would not be a universe. And if you were to alter the properties uh, of of the lion or the unicorn, then you would strip them of the of the essential properties that make them a unicorn. Now, by essential property, uh, this is um, this is also uh, part of the philosophy of ontology. There are things have essential properties and they have accidental properties. And long story short, is a, a thing's essential properties are the things that something has to have in order to be what it is. And were it to lack these properties, it would not be what it is. For, so a book, for example, it, it is necessarily, it is essentially multiple sheets of paper that have writing on them and they are bound together. Uh, those uh, ink and paper in a binder that those are necessary properties of a book but 
an accidental an accidental property of a book would be, um, for example, that the book is about the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. That would be an accidental property, because obviously there are many books that don't have that property. Many many books are are they talk about different subjects, but essential properties for a book to be what it is, it has to be multiple sheets of paper with writing on the paper and the paper are bound in a binder. So that, that that's that's one very quick and simple uh, illustration between what what a thing's necess- essential properties are and what a thing's accidental properties are. And if you were to alter a lion so that it could exist in a universe without stars and planets, you would have to you would have to you would have to strip it of of its essential properties. Essentially, a lion is a sort of big cat um, that is physical, quadruped, cov- covered in fur, and anything like that just couldn't exist in a universe that consists of a sim- simple singularity. So, this this is the most common way to try to take down the ontological argument to try to bring out these reductio ad absurdum arguments and they they're just no good because the things in question are not logically coherent and therefore they either exist in no possible worlds or they don't exist in all possible worlds or what makes uh what makes the thing in question maximally great is is really um questionable now a second most common objection i get to this is uh how the question is formed in a question how do you even know what properties go to, to make a being great how do we know what a maximally great being is how do we know that it's omnipotent omniscient omnipresent and so on and so forth uh it, it, we isn't that isn't that isn't that subjective isn't that like as subjective as what goes to make up a, a per, most perfect island or a maximally great pizza so isn't you know, I, this is an objection I hear from time to time, and I don't think it's any good. Um, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be defending the ontological argument. Uh, well, the, the the point that's that's trying to be made here is that if we cannot determine which qualities are great-making qualities, then the ontological argument is no good. Because even if all of the premises were true, we couldn't know what this being at the end of the of the argument in the conclusion is like, and therefore. We, we couldn't call it God. And the objector here is arguing that different people will likely have different opinions on what qualifies as a great-making property. It is true that which properties are great-making properties is debatable to some extent, but I think that several properties aren't debatable at all. Um, so, for example, it is, would God be greater if he were timeless, or would he be greater if he existed in time? There's some debate over this in, within the church. Is is God a timeless being, or is he in time? And w- would he be greater? Some say that God literally, actually feels emotions. I would be one of them. And that he is a greater being if he feels emotions than if he doesn't feel emotions. The ones that say that he doesn't feel emotions are called divine impassibilists. God is impassable. He, he, he doesn't change even in his emotions. Now, I would argue that God would be greater if 
if he felt emotions, uh, because otherwise, you know, sometimes I like to jokingly say, Jesus was not a Cyberman. <laughs> that, that's a Doctor Who reference. Or, uh, more, or God is not a Vulcan. He's not just sheer rationality. But, you know, that's, that's another area of debate. But I think, I think everyone could, can agree that a being is greater if he's powerful than if he were weak. That he would be greater if he were knowledgeable than if he were ignorant. A being is greater if he is morally good than if he is morally evil. Or again, um, uh, the, the more places you're able to be at one time, the greater of a being you are. Omnipresence. So, I think, if you, if you were just to go out on the street and interview people and ask them, do you think, it's, do you think a being is greater if he's, if he's strong or if he's weak? If he's knowledgeable or if he's ignorant, if he's good or if he's evil, what's what's better? What do you think is make? What do you think is a great man? What properties would you ascribe to him? I think we'd all agree on at least these properties, and I think we would all agree that a being is great if he has power, knowledge, goodness, presence, and of course, um, Existence. We would uh, ne and necessary existence is greater than contingent existence. These five properties, and taken to their maximal extent, you they would it would be omnipotence, omniscience, moral perfection, omnipresence, and necessary existence. A maximally great being has these properties. Now, whatever else he might have the ability to feel emotions or not, being in time or out of time, um, it at least has these five attributes. Um, now, a third common objection <clears throat> is what is known as the omnipotence paradox. The omnipotence paradox. And oftentimes, you will see the the objection formed as a riddle they'll they'll say can god create a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it can god create a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it now this this is a, a very, this is, this seems like a very difficult question to answer because no matter how you answer it you imply that god is not omnipotent he can't do all things if you say, yes, God can create a rock he cannot lift, then there is something God cannot do, namely, lift the rock that he created. He cannot lift it. He created it, and now he can't move it. Or if you say, no, no, God cannot create a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it. Any rock God creates, he'll be able to move. Then there is something that God cannot do, namely, create a rock that he is unable to move. So if you say yes, or if you say no, you admit God is not omnipotent. How are we to answer this objection? Is the idea of an omnipotent being really incoherent? This would be to refute the first premise, that a maximally great being is possible. If an omnipotent being is impossible, then there, you don't. Then it is not true that a maximally great being exists in some possible worlds, and therefore in all of them, and then therefore in the actual world. This is a very serious, the omnipotence paradox is a serious objection we need to deal with. Well, I think it's only successful if you presuppose a certain definition of omnipotence. And that is to be, 
to say that an omnipotent being can literally do anything, literally anything. But most Christian philosophers and theologians, both today and historically, have defined omnipotence as the ability to do anything logically possible. Anything logically possible. So God, God can raise the dead, he can create the universe out of nothing, he can uh, make axe heads float in water, he can make a donkey speak, think of Balaam's donkey. I was just in that passage, in, I was, I'm reading through the Apologetic Study Bible, I was just in that passage the other day, I think it was yesterday. Um, he can uh, he can heal lepers. Uh, he can do all he can do all kinds of things that don't violate the laws of logic. But he can't create a square circle, a married bachelor, or a rock too heavy for him to lift. Now, often when I point this out, well, well first let me read a, a C, let me read a good a good quote from C.S. Lewis on this that he put in his book, The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote. His omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. This is no limit to his power. If you choose to say God can give creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix to them the two other words, God can. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things, but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives, not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk it about God, end quote. So in other words, saying God can create a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it is like saying God can beat himself in a fistfight, or God can think up an equation so complicated that he cannot solve it. <clears throat> as, as Lewis says here in this quote that I've pulled up on Goodreads, uh, meaningless combinations of words don't suddenly acquire meaning just because you attach to them the, the prefix God can. God can create a square circle. God can create a merry bachelor. God can create a one-ended stick. God can create a person who believes in him and, and is an atheist at the same time. These, these sentences don't acquire any meaning just because you put God can in front of them. They're, they're, they're just babble. They're just nonsensical, incoherent babble. That... <clears throat> Think of this when applied to God's omniscience. What if you were to ask... Okay, omniscience. God knows all things. He knows and believes all true things. Everything that could happen, everything that would happen, everything that will happen. He knows everything there is to know about everything. So that means God can answer any question you pose to him about anything. Give him any mathematical equation. Give him any philosophical question. Ask him how many, uh, ask him how many, um, how many seconds have passed since the universe began. Ask him what's going to happen in next week's television episode. Anything you ask him, he'll be able to answer it. 
But what if you were to ask God, God, what is the color of a what is the color of a red square circle that that my friend the Merry Bachelor is carrying? And what does that color smell like? God would not be able to answer this question. Why? Because it's a bunch of incoherent babble. They are, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis put it, meaningless combinations of words. But does God's inability to answer this question mean that he is not omniscient? No. And neither does his inability to create a world in which you have a married bachelor friend who is carrying a rectangle that is the color red and is also and and has a smell colors don't have smells uh neither does his inability to create such a thing means that mean that he is not omnipotent the omnipotence paradox presupposes a false definition of omnipotence. Now, often when I point this out to atheists, they'll say, oh, well, you're just dodging the objection by redefining omnipotence. No, I'm taking the definition of omnipotence that most contemporary and historical theologians have taken. I would, I don't think any theologian today, except very, except a very small minority, would say that God can do even the logically impossible. I think maybe Rene Descartes held that view. I'm not sure. I, I heard that he did, but very few hold to uh, what is called in the literature universal possibilism. Very few hold to that definition of, of omnipotence. So I, I'm going with the mainstream of theology and philosophy of religion. So these are the three most common objections to the ontological argument and we've seen that that they don't refute the argument. And if the argument the argument the way I see it stands. And really the only problem with this argument is that it is so heavily philosophical, so full of technical jargon that it isn't very good in evangelistic encounters. When if 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 I meet an atheist, um, let's say let's say I start going out with a girl, and she has a, a brother who's an atheist, and she wants me to talk to him about the existence of God, and he asks me, "Why should I believe God exists?" You know what? The ontological argument is not going to be the 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 one that I pull out. <laughs> Because there's a lot of, of groundwork that needs to be laid before I can even defend the argument. <laughs> uh, I'm more likely to pull out uh, the Kalam cosmological argument, or the argument from fine-tuning, or the moral argument, or the contingency argument, which I, I haven't written. I've only written a blog post about it. I haven't written in, 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 uh, in the books I've referenced, and I haven't done a podcast episode on it. Um... Not because I think it's a bad argument, it's just I don't – I actually really like it. It's just um, I'm not – I haven't studied it as in-depth as these other ones. Uh, but I, I might pull that one out, might pull out um, – I or I might uh, talk about the historical evidence for the resurrection, which I'd like to get into 
someday. Um, but don't think this argument isn't good in witnessing. If you've got a buddy who's really into modal logic, or if he's got a background in philosophy, you can use this argument on him. He'll probably understand uh, the difference between essential attributes and accidental attributes. Um, he'll understand possible world semantics um, and things like that. And you'll be able to go with... In fact, it, in fact, some, not a lot, but some have been converted because of this argument. Um but of course, they were mainly philosophers. They were, they were, they had doctorates in philosophy. Uh, William Lane Craig mentioned one in in, uh, in an episode of the Reasonable Faith podcast. I wish I could point you to which specific episode of the Reasonable Faith podcast that was, but I can't remember. So anyway, that does it for today's episode. I don't have anything else to add. Again, if you if you want to really study this argument as well as the other ones I've covered in this podcast, be on the lookout for my upcoming book, The Case for the One True God. Uh, the, the Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. And one way you can keep up with that and know when the book is released is to go to Facebook and like the Cerebral Faith Facebook page. Just get on Facebook, go to the search engine, and type Cerebral Faith into the search engine and it and should come up it's the you can't you can't miss it it's the the one with the the brain for a logo or you can follow the cerebral faith twitter account at cerebralfaith.com i mean not no i mean at cerebral faith that's the twitter account you can uh subscribe you can subscribe to my blog www.cerebralfaith.blogspot.com uh, and of course, if you if you subscribe to this podcast and you keep up with it, I'm gonna tell I'm gonna say when the podcast comes out. So just be on the lookout for that. Uh, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, and I think that you will benefit from it. And if you're if you're a non Christian, I really hope it brings you to the faith. And if you're if you're if you are a Christian, then I hope it um, equips you and helps you to be a better witness for Christ. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. And I will see you next week.